a podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines, people working to understand viruses and how they affect you. We are talking with students, postdocs, and other virologists so that you can learn who they are and what they do. I am Larissa Thackray, and I am hosting this podcast from America's Heartland in St. Louis, Missouri. On July 1st, 2022, we talked with Isabella Resende, a postdoctoral researcher at Stanford University School of Medicine. She received her bachelor's and master's from Federal University of Juaz de Fora and a PhD from Federal University of Minas Gerais in Brazil. She is investigating risk factors for severe outcome following yellow fever virus infection. Uh, thanks for uh, talking with us today. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, uh, thank you for inviting me. Uh, so I'm Isabella Rezende. I'm I'm a virologist, a postdoc at Stanford University School of Medicine, and I'm uh, now doing like some work on uh, mainly arboviruses here in Desiree's Labo Lab. Great. And can you tell us how you first became interested in science and then virology? Oh, yeah, sure. I think my, my interest in science uh, was when I was still in high school. So I was part of the science club in my high school back in Brazil because I'm from Brazil. So I, I did my all my uh, I got all my degrees there. So I think that it started when I was in high school. And then uh, was when I decided to go to college and um, do biological science. So that's my background. And during this, uh, like in during this, during the college, I, I realized that like, I love science, I love do science. And I, I was part of a few labs during my undergrad. And then, yeah, and then I started like my, my virology path. And can you tell us a little bit about how you sort of found your um, PhD lab and then now your postdoctoral lab? How, how did that happen? Okay, so when I was like still in Brazil, I during my undergrad, I had uh, like uh, classes with a virology professor, and I became in love with virology because of of her. So I decided to join her lab for like um, my my undergrad dissertation, then my master's degree, and we I I continued with her for my my PhD. So actually, I uh, he was she was my mentor for almost ten years. And yeah, we we had we used to have like a, a good relationship, and we collaborated still. And because during the time I was still in Brazil, my during my finishing my PhD, she she get she started a collaboration with my actual my current uh, mentor now at, here at Stanford. So uh, yeah, so basically because of uh, her connections, I came to Stanford, and now I'm doing like my research here. I see. And how was that like um, sort of switching to another country for science? So is there differences or similarities in a way that that in the way that people do science in Brazil and the U.S.? What's different about it? I mean, it, it is different. We can notice the difference, especially because in Brazil, we, don't, we, are, we are not like a super poor country, but we don't have a lot of money to do science there. Now we, we are like in a huge crisis, so it's even worse than usually. But 
it's different. Uh, I think the lab are different. We in Brazil, especially my former lab, it was a big virology lab. We used to have a lot of undergrad students. is It's not common here in my actual lab. We basically have uh, uh, PhD and postdocs, and also some because my my PI here he she is a MD. So we also have some MD internship, like interns doing internship here in our lab. So I think that's the one of the difference. And the other one is here we have uh, uh, opportunities to do whatever you want to do because you have more access to new technology, to reagents, and like everything is delivered faster than in Brazil, for example, and it's cheaper than in Brazil. Uh, yeah, but I, I liked my time like doing research in Brazil too, I think. We we learn about doing research in low medium income countries, and we 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 learn how to be more smart and more do more with less. So the infrastructure is a little bit um, different. Yeah, sure. I mean here, I, and my my comparison is like with Stanford, like it's Stanford and my former lab in Brazil. So I don't know about other universities here in the U.S., but like Stanford has an amazing structure for everything. Our lab is like was built for being a lab actually so you have i mean everything that you need and in brazil sometimes you have a room that became a lab after like a few years so it's different and then can you tell us then a little bit about the research that you're then doing in your postdoc sort of like the big picture the big picture questions that you're trying to address and then what are the techniques that you use to address that okay so my my research that i'm doing here stanford starter started during my PhD in brazil so during 2017 and 2018, a huge yellow fever outbreak took place in Brazil, especially in Minas Gerais state, that it's my state. So we start studying when I was in Brazil, the, the virus and the, the patients. And when the, the, my, my former PI uh, made this collaboration with my actual PI here, we decided to analyze more the epidemiological scenario of this outbreak. So now I'm doing basically epidemiology analysis using those, like this data collected during the yellow fever outbreak in Brazil. But I'm also sequencing virus here and trying to see if we can find any difference from virus from different types of samples, for example, from serum, from CSF, from urine. Uh, so that we are doing this comparison. And during the outbreak, we also described a new clinical picture named that we named late relapse in hepatitis after yellow fever. So I think the big aim of this project is now to describe better and have more data and more analysis regarding this new clinical picture that was observed during the yellow fever outbreak. How frequent is yellow fever virus sort of outbreaks or infection in Central South America? I mean, you, you kind of think about it in terms of sort of sub-Saharan Africa where it's endemic, but how, how common is it um, in Brazil and, and South America? The virus is endemic in the Amazon basin, like in the north part of Brazil, but we don't have a lot of cases outside this area. What happened, what have been happening is that since 1999, we, we've been observing a, a change in the epidemiological scenario of yellow fever. So more cases were uh, happen in the Midwest of Brazil, but it's huge. It's all, it was always a few cases, like 20 cases, 30 cases in like every five years. 
when the this huge break started in 2017 was actually like a surprise because we're 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 not expecting this like big outbreak in this area um yeah so it's not a like a common disease in brazil it's like besides the north part of brazil like the amazon basin it's not common um and is the thought that um, it's emerging because the vector is um, sort of the insect vector is is changing its ability to infect, or is it a different strain of virus? What's the idea as to why it's spreading now? I mean, I think the idea is, was based on we didn't have a lot of people vaccinated in this area, so when the the virus reached this area, the, the virus found like all this population unvaccinated, and also the vector. And reservoir, the, the, the most common reservoir is the non-human primates. I forgot the name of the species right now, but it's like some species that we can find in this area of Brazil. So the virus found like hosts, the reservoir and vectors. So basically, we think that was the, the main reason why this outbreak was so huge. And why and how the virus reached this area is still like a question. And why was it like in 2017, not 2016? And can you tell us then a little bit about how do you do these epidemiological studies? What are kind of the, some of the techniques that you use to study it? Like we're trying to find risk factors for severe disease. So we are running like uh, uh, linear regression and multi multivariate analysis, trying to find these risk factors using the data that we collected during the outbreak. And for the, the late prolapse and hepatitis, you're doing basically like a description uh, analysis. So it's not like comparing, uh, a, like a comparison group. So we are more describing this group. But for the the other epi analysis that we are doing, are basically we're basically focused on risk factors for severe disease and death. And this is trying to look at some of the patient data that goes along with sort of mortality, morbidity that happened during the uh, um, outbreak. Yeah, our big idea, I would say, is that uh, if you find like some risk factors, and we found some, like we are like writing the manuscript right now, uh, then we would we could help the the like physicians at the hospital with the management of the patient. So if if the physi the physician detects, for example, oh, this patient has AST levels higher than five hundred units per liter, then it's an indicative that the patient needs to go to the I see you and like be more like a higher level of care. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, exactly. And like then the, the physician will, will be able to improve the management of this patient and the treatment and everything. So our, our idea is also like maybe you can have like a guide for yellow fever hospitalization or something like that, that like who could use it or like PAHO, all the like world organizations would, would use this guide. Yeah, okay. And um, speaking of this um, late onset hepatitis, is this something that has been described before with yellow fever virus or no? Oh, actually not, not clearly. What, it what we had until this outbreak was some studies described um, like fatigue, especially fatigue and weakness lasting for like two months. But we don't have any any other data that can say or affirm that oh that is because the the yellow fever. What we have now is that we have 
a follow-up of a few patients. And then during this follow-up, we could observe the, like the patient was improving and then the, the patient got worse again and presenting a lot of signs and symptoms. And also the laboratory exams was bad. So the patients presented again AST and ALT in high levels and other hepatic markers. Uh, and some symptoms like fatigue, weakness, and uh, some patients presented a jaundice again. So now we have more data to support that this um, description during the convalescent phase was truly related to the yellow fever during the acute phase. And we detected the virus and the yellow fever genome in samples during this convalescent phase, like 60, 70 days after the symptoms onset. So we have more data supporting that this uh, liver clinical picture was related to the infection, to the acute phase of the yellow fever infection. Okay. And is it thought that the yellow fever is actually persisting in hepatocytes in the liver, or is it more um, immune responses that are happening, you know, many months later that are causing the damage? What's the idea? Uh, we have some data that showed the virus in the hepatocytes uh, three months later. So maybe the virus somehow could uh, stay longer in the, in the cells and cause some inf uh, inflammation in this area. But we also have some data showing that patients who developed the latent relapsing hepatitis, they presented uh, the, the immune activation was later in the acute infection. So while... Um, the, the like patients that didn't develop this clinical picture had a, a acute infection. I don't remember exactly the time, but like before this other group, the, this group presented uh, like an acute activation later. And then probably this, this immune response uh, lasts longer than usual. And then the patient after, even after two months presented also all these symptoms and signs related to the infection. So it's probably both, but more related to the immune response. Right. So they have sort of like a delayed immune response that goes on to being almost like chronically bad for them in some way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But like the, the good, the good news is that it's, uh, it doesn't last forever. So we have data until like three 300 days after symptoms onset, and the patient is like totally normal. So the immune response was uh, normal again. I mean, patient wasn't presenting immune response uh, anymore. Right. Okay. So yeah, it's like it's prolonged, but like there is a, a stop. Um, a resolution. So it's not. Yeah, it's not like a chronic disease as hepatitis C, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And. Um, what are your thoughts after this? So you're sort of um, in your postdoc, what are you kind of planning on for your future? Are you gonna go into academics, industry? What are you thinking about? Oh, I mean, I've been working on outbreaks and pandemics since my, my master's, even before that, during my, my undergraduation period. So I think I, my, my career plan is trying to follow the public health path. So work on genomic surveillance and like surveillance in general and improve the policy, like the public health policies in especially low middle income countries and how we can improve, not only improve the surveillance, but also um, 
train people, train people from these areas to be able to run their own surveillance, sequencing, and improve the like the health in general for the for the country. Right. For a career like that, would you be looking to work for like WHO or an NGO? Um, who, who actually hire someone like you? I mean, I think even like California Secretary of Health, like yeah, Secretary of Health can like hire something like like some people like me with this career plan and goals and etc. But like who like World Health Organization and Pan American Health Organization are the are probably the dream job, the dream place to work for. And CDC, it's another um, place to work with, like with these, like this career. Right. It's been an interesting time for public health in the last two and a half years with the whole COVID <laughs> pandemic. Um, and what are your thoughts about that? I, I would say being in public health is, um, I think the challenges of that um, have been sort of highlighted in the past um, uh, two and a half years. So what are your thoughts about that? I mean, for sure, no one was expecting a pandemic. Uh, and when I was in Brazil, I was working directly with the like Minister of Health, uh, helping on diagnosis. All my lab turned, like the, my research lab turned in a diagnosis lab. Is, we wouldn't expect that, but I think the... Right now, we can say that we have a like, positive balance. So we have all these places that are running genomics and like sequencing. So it improves so much like our sequencing capacity, our analysis capacity. So of course, the decisions, especially during at the beginning of the pandemic, was difficult to be made. Um, but now we, I would say, we learned a lot and improved a lot our way to do and think about uh, public health and seeing how much is important to have good leaders and people that know what uh, they are doing and like making all decision, all these decisions for, like for a better world, I would say. Right, right, yeah. Cool, um, and you were saying that you're gonna present some of this work in a flash talk and a poster. What work are you gonna talk about at ASV? Okay, so I will talk about the detection of yellow fever RNA in CSF samples, like cerebral spinal fluid samples from patients who evolved to death during the yellow fever outbreak in Brazil. So yellow fever is basically viscerotropic, but a few studies, especially from the, like, the last outbreak, showed, showed that we could detect yellow fever also in the central nervous system. So we detected, we detected five patients, not like a huge number, but it is still, it's a, a new find. So I'm, I'm presenting this data in the ASV. Great, cool. Well, nice uh, to talk to you this afternoon um, and we look forward to seeing your data. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. This has been Let's Meet the Virologist, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Larissa Thackray, and thanks for listening. You can find us on Google, Apple, Amazon Music, and other podcast providers, or at lmtv.podbean.com.